To all of you who are watching, not only in our community, but across the country, we want to wish you the happiest of Sabbaths. We're back. Last weekend, we were off as we celebrated with our university, the Alumni Weekend. And so you were able, if you tuned in, to hear some amazing stories of what God is doing through our alumni in different places of the world. But today... Joey and I are back to simply invite you to dwell with us in the Word as we think about finances like we've been doing all quarter long, but now we think of finances with an eye towards the future. So before we do that, we're going to have a moment just to invite you to pray with us and ask for God's provision over our conversation. Father, we are so thankful because... You ultimately provide hope, and hope allows us for the possibility of planning ahead, of planning a future. And regardless of the number of zeros in our bank accounts, we simply would pray that you give us the certainty that you are going to be part of our future, regardless of what happens. We want to remember, Lord, so many things that are happening in our world we want to remember and pray for people in our community who, again, are facing a storm this weekend. Uh, we just pray, Lord, that uh, you keep them safe. We also, Lord, would pray for all of the alumni that have left this past weekend, that they may have gotten home safely. And Father, we pray for uh, that helicopter and our missions team in the Philippines and how devastating the not knowing might be, Lord. We just pray that your peace and your comfort be with the families. We pray for us as we converse. We do so thinking about the future, a future with you. Amen. Joey, long, busy, busy, busy weekend last weekend. How? What was your favorite part? Was it the haystacks? <laughs> the haystacks were pretty good. But my favorite part was just reconnecting mm -hmm. with so many people, um, mm -hmm. people who had been here in Loma Linda, people that I had gone to school with at Pacific Union College. Oh, wow. Also, I got to meet some of my old professors as well who were coming down to, um, to visit and to connect with people, uh, Dr. Hammerlin, Dr. Taylor, um, yeah, it was, it was just really good to see to see all those people again and just have great conversations. It was it was a fantastic week. It yeah. was a fant with fantastic music. Yeah. Uh, which I think that was my favorite part. It's just the music was uh, excellent. And then it was really inspiring. Um, I really enjoyed Dr. Hart and his presentation during our time slot mm -hmm. on what God is doing with people. Mm. Um, we had the story of a nurse uh, who, and if you watched, you might remember, who uh, 
had a child. The child was on the spectrum and he was being bullied and he was just, it was a difficult go for him at mm. school. And, and this love of a parent invites uh, or causes this this mother to become an advocate. And now there's 22 children in a school that she has uh, started for people that are on the spectrum. So that was amazing. And then the other thing that was really neat was to see how invested this university and this family is in the community. And so I love the fact that some of our gateway graduates were highlighted. And the fact that uh, we made a point of just noting what they're doing in kind of uh, disenfranchised and underserved sections here in Southern California and how they're the, that ultimate bridge between healthcare and uh, the communities that we try to serve. So it was, it was truly a high weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's nice getting together in weekends like these, um, just, just to realize that as a church, we have ministries that we're doing, mm-hmm. but we are a part of a larger picture mm. and a larger community. And it's just amazing to see what God is doing mm. through the work of, of Loma Linda at large. And so that's, that's always very powerful. Yeah. And that, I think that is a perfect segue to our conversation today, because as I was sitting in the pews this weekend, there were two thoughts that, that kept running through my head. Hmm. And the first one, obviously was, the providential care that God has given us in this place and in this time. I mean, you look around and it was just so moving to see a church full of alumni that is that is invested in service. And then I started thinking of all the generations of alumni that have gone out and invested themselves in service and how that was possible through a vision and through a dream uh, that Ellen White had uh, when she came here, and this was nothing but Orange Grove. And so I think savvy planning, thoughtful planning for the future, kind of linking to what some of the lesson was talking about, really, really um, is giving a great, great harvest for the kingdom in uh, in terms of service. The other thing that that I constantly talked about was... Throughout the service, um, we all know that uh, the costs of healthcare in California have, sky- have skyrocketed. We know that uh, our, at least our institution, is constantly trying to balance this call to be mission-oriented and mission-minded with the financial realities of, uh, of the marketplace. And what I find, found so fascinating is I did not hear a single a uh, long-winded statement on how we need your money. Now, mm. there was money that was picked up uh, from our alumnus, but it was for a worthy student fund. It was to continue this tradition of service and mission. And so that also kept um, kept running through my mind, not only as I connected it with the lesson, but as I as I thought about what this place really is about. It's a, it's a place that is investing in the future. And for us the best return on investment is service. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And that's the powerful point that the lesson does focus on is we think with the future in mind, but we don't think with fear and anxiety, Mm -hmm. right? We, 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 we look forward with um, expectation of opportunity of what God can do through us and for us in the future. Mm, Yeah. That's, I think, that's the point that, uh, continued kind of to echo as, as I read through the, through the lesson, 
it was kind of this notion that, yes, it is wise. And I mean, the whole of wisdom literature is mm -hmm. written on this idea that it is wise to plan for the future. But it's also uh, ultimately a planning and a process that is devoid of fear. Mm. Um, and yeah. it's not only devoid of fear, but it is full of trust. Mm -hmm. And so if uh, there's a collapse in the market uh, tomorrow and our retirement funds disappear, then we're, we're not afraid. We, we know uh, that God is, is ultimately uh, going to look, af look out after us. And so there's, there's always that tension, right, between the planning and between the giving ourselves over uh, in trust that the Lord will provide. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's something that the uh, author has done a good job of because there is a fine line between planning and, and um, hoarding, mm -hmm. right? There, there is that, that, that line between those. And he, he does make that clear that, yes, we are expected to plan for the future and make sure that, you know, to, to ensure that there, is, there are funds to take care of us in retirement. We're not saying use up, open up all your right. retirement accounts, um, don't go in debt, right? Um, uh, don't rack up credit card bills in order to to do God's work. That's that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about having good financial principles, but at the same time, don't let the worry and fear over the future keep us from partnering with God in doing the good that He's doing around us right now. Mm -hmm. And so there is that that line that He He walks very mm -hmm. gently, and I think He does a good job of. Yeah, likewise, Joey. That that I think was one of the things that again uh, stuck with me. The other thing I think that, that stuck with me and just trying to, to delve a little bit deeper into kind of not just some financial principles, but some theological principles that we can adopt uh, and that can help us and aid us as we plan for the future and as we decide how we're going to allocate our resources is the fact that often, I think, this desire for hoarding comes from a misunderstanding, a deep, deep-seated misunderstanding of the gospel. And let me, let me kind of expand on that. We all know, I think, intellectually, that ultimately, death is the great equalizer, mm. right? It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you accumulate. Mm. Death is, is the ultimate equalizer. And intellectually, that makes sense. It makes sense to the point that, uh, as you know, there's uh, the billion, several billionaires have gotten together and made a commitment, a pledge, to donate to charity uh, the vast majority of their fortunes when they when they pass. Mm. So intellectually, we understand this idea that at some point death remains the great equalizer. The problem isn't that we don't understand that. The problem is that often, because we are unsure, we, we tend to avoid conversations about death. Hmm. So people can, can know intellectually that their time on this earth is coming to an end, and yet they can still be compelled to hoard because we always think that we have more time. Yeah. And I think we, we, we're pushed to think in those ways because we're afraid of what lies on the other side. Um, and I think the only way that we can become more 
oriented practically to this intellectual understanding that we have, that we can't take anything with us, is if we stop looking at death with fear. Mm. And the only way we do that is we've got to understand the gospel. Yeah. And the gospel says, perfect love casts out all fear. And so when we think about kind of end of life decisions, those are conversations that we ought not to be afraid to have. Mm -hmm. Those are conversations that we ought to welcome because we have understood the gospel. Yeah. And you're exactly right. There is a lot of fear surrounding those kinds of conversations. Almost, you know, we try not to think of ourselves as being superstitious because we're mm -hmm. Christian, right? But there's almost a superstition. Mm -hmm. Like if we talk about death, you know, are we inviting death mm -hmm. in? The, re the, real, the reality is that death is coming no matter whether we talk about it or not, right? right? I think it's Benjamin T um, Franklin that first said, um, the only certainties in life are death and taxes, right? So yes, we know death is coming just as we know April 15 is coming. Right. <laughs> so we, we know that uh, death, death is coming for us. The question is, are we going to be ready for it? And that's really the question that Jesus is asking in, in, in Luke chapter 12, in the parable of Luke chapter 12, right? He's, he's saying, this fool, he planned for everything except for his own death, right? And so those conversations that you're talking about, I do think are so important. The conversations that we have about the end of life care, what we want at the end of our lives to look like, how we want um, the resources that God blessed us with, how, how we want that to be used. All of those conversations, we, I recently had those conversations with my parents um, and instead of being something that was, you know, you know it, of course it's sad to think of them being gone, but it actually was something that opened up a part of their lives and their hearts to me to see what they really cared about in their, in their lives and what they want. That was actually something that was very a blessing for me, for my sister, for us to have those conversations mm -hmm. with our parents. So I, I don't think those are conversations. I understand why they're uncomfortable, but I don't think those are conversations we should be afraid to have because God does call us to plan for the future. Yeah. And I think, again, like you're saying, the fear comes, I think, from a focus on mortality hmm. that is not quite in line with, with kind of how Jesus sees, yeah. sees death. So I was thinking this week as I've read the lesson, man, wouldn't it be nice if we could reframe the conversation surrounding death mm -hmm. and the planning of uh, our assets and end of life care and medical directives and all the other things that, that need to, to happen. And I realized, or I thought I said to myself, you know, one of the things that we can do is to simply continue pushing this message that we often talk about when we are invited to hold space for people who are in uh, those last steps of the journey of their journey on this life. And that is, we tell them, look, God can heal you. Um, the beauty of this moment is that the resurrection is coming mm -hmm. and healing is coming. It's just a matter of time. Mm -hmm. It can be today, right now, and God can, or you can die. And then the next thing you know, it, it, it's the second coming for those who die is here. And that's, I think, why the gospel says, blessed are those who rest in the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. It has to do with this idea that, yes, 
death for those of us who are left here is painful and there's definitely some separation and some sadness. But for those of us who, who are on that journey, it is, I, I think, reframing it and thinking, man, this is the second coming. Mm. Um, and it is the opportunity for uh, God to have everything that he has planned for my life fulfilled. That, I think, is, is a way in which the, the conversation, at least, isn't so fraught with tension and fear. Yeah, I love how you said that, that healing is coming. It's just a matter of time, right? It's just a matter of when. And really, all the healings that we get here on earth are just temporary right. until the final healing of when Jesus comes, right? That's the only healing that will never end. Mm -hmm. And so that's something that we can look forward to. And w there is a tendency, especially in pop culture, to frame death as the ultimate evil, mm -hmm. right? Like death is the ultimate evil that you want to try to postpone and keep away from as much as possible. And that makes sense if you're not thinking that there is something beyond right. death. But as Christians, we know that death by itself is not the ultimate evil, mm. right? Separation from God is, mm -hmm. right? And as long as we are with God, death is just a tempor temporary state that we just await for something better. That's so well said, Joey. And when you start looking at it like that, then you're thinking to yourself, what is what are practically the benefits of having these conversations mm -hmm. uh, without the fear and, and without the tension that sometimes the conversations by their very na nature, since they are sensitive, imply. And you mentioned one. You said, well, one of the really neat things of having these conversations, and my mother-in-law is a uh, been a trust officer for many years mm. and now is a director of trust services at our conference. So we we talk about this a lot. And one of the things that it does is it does allow you to get an insight into the priorities that the people that you love have. Mm. It also forces you to prioritize. Mm. Um, when you're thinking about kind of what I want done uh, with not only my financially, but with uh, medical decisions and, and power of attorney and et cetera, et cetera, it does force me to define what my priorities are, which I think tells me, um, even at you know at forty, um, I've I've got plans to be around for uh, many many more decades. But even as I've had those conversations now, it, it has forced me to to start thinking about the things that I prioritize. So that, I think, is, is, is a benefit. The other benefit is it allows you to, to have some sort of volition and voice mm. over what happens in the future. And it does remove, it turns down the pressure for those whom you love mm -hmm. that these decisions are already made and they're yeah. made by you. So I think those just uh, off the top of my head as I was thinking about kind of this this topic, I said, well, there are some real benefits that you can have to having these conversations at any uh, season in life um, when you're not having them in a, in a space of fear. That's such a great point about turning down the pressure because I have been in so many spaces where the question is, what would that person mm. have wanted? And the reality is, as, as well as we know each other, right. there's no way to know for sure. And that angst of that that the the survivors of loved ones who have passed away deal with of trying to figure out what 
to how to do what the other person would have wanted, their loved one would have wanted, it does create a lot of anxiety. It does create a lot of pressure. And so as much as we can take that pressure off of them by sharing with them, this is what I want. Um, obviously, we don't want to be unreasonable, but like, this is what I want. Letting people know that actually does help so, yeah. so much. Yeah. And it's, it, it does allow for, for in a moment, you know how crisis is, right? Yeah. It allows for you to have, as, as a person who's going through a moment of crisis, it does allow you to be present in the moment mm. of crisis rather than thinking about other things. Um, I've, had, I've had a healthcare directive since before I had any financial resources. And um, I, I really think that uh, the fact that I, we've, uh, at least Lynn and I, have really tried to demythologize death and to have these conversations straightforward, mm. I think that's, that's better preparing um, us uh, when, when, one of us, when one of us has to, has to pass on. That's powerful. And it does show that, you know, as a Christian, that even after we've died, we can serve our loved ones, mm. right? Yeah. That's a service that we provide for them. I've even heard of some people who have written letters um, to mm. their loved ones um, just, just in case they don't ever get a chance to share those final words with their loved ones, that they write them on paper mm. so that as a part of their trust that their, their, their loved ones can hear one final message of love and care mm. and compassion. I think that's, that's I think so that's beautiful. Powerful. That is yeah. so beautiful. And it, uh, I love the way that you put it. It is the opportunity to extend one last act of love while we're on this earth to those who matter the most to us. So, Joey, you mentioned, and we've talked a little bit about this tension, right? Because let's, I mean, I know we've, we're trying to demythologize it, but it's not a pleasant conversation to have. It's, it's a conversation that ultimately is fraught with the reality that those whom we love or ourselves um, are going to be separate, separated for a time. So there is, there is some difficulty in having the conversation. And there is also kind of the call that we've been talking about to serve, to plan, to prepare. And I think nowhere, of all the texts that the lesson that the lesson pointed to, nowhere was this paradox and this tension better captured than in the parable that you mentioned, which is in Luke chapter 12. Mm -hmm. Now, the lesson deals with... Um, six verses, 16 through 22. But what I want to do is I want to go before and I want to go right after just to capture the full force of the tension that, that Jesus is trying to let set before us. Mm. So Jesus is teaching and someone kind of pipes up from the crowd in verse 13 and says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance mm. with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard on, against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus is actually, and, and this is, I think, really refreshing, Joey. Jesus isn't talking about the ills of material wealth. Mm -hmm. He is talking about material wealth being what guides your ultimate pursuit in life. Paul Tillich 
famous uh, 20th century theologian says that you can learn most about people when you when you punctuate those issues that are uh, he calls them issues of ultimate concern. Mm. And what Jesus is saying is wealth cannot be that issue of ultimate concern. That's where we get sideways. So to those of us who I've often heard that money is the root of all evils, it doesn't seem like that is really linking up with what Jesus is saying. Jesus is Jesus's ministry, by the way, was contingent on people that had some sort of financial resources providing from the, from the ministry. But those resources weren't uh, their matters of ultimate concern. And so I think before we talk about finances and about planning and estate planning or any kind of planning, we've got to realize that in the Christian, in, in the Christian narrative, there isn't a problem with material wealth. There's a problem with the unmitigated pursuit of material wealth. Yeah, that's a really great point because, like you said, Jesus doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money, that's right? Correct. It's it's putting money in its improper place correct. and trying to use it to do something that it was never meant to do. Mm-hmm. It, was never meant to provide us ultimate security. It was never meant to be the ultimate pursuit of our lives. It was never meant to be our source of happiness. Money mm-hmm. is not those things. But of course, money is necessary to live lives here on earth, right? right? So I think it's uh, Kanye West who said, um, it's not um, money, having money isn't everything, not having it is, right? right? And so, yes. Kanye when you- was, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, I can't believe that because Kanye usually, Joe, you know Kanye, half the stuff that comes out of his mouth it's is terrible. nonsensical. <laughs> yeah. But then they'll drop a jewel of wisdom. Yes, I, I love that. Yeah, well so, done, Kanye. <laughs> so it is, it is, yes, not having money, if you don't have enough to survive, obviously there is there is a need for us right. to get some. But but after that point, and that was that was interesting. I, I just recently watched a video um, about the world. There's a World Happiness Index, yes, right? Yes. And there's a video out there that says um, why Finland and Denmark are happier than the United States. Have you seen that? Yes. Yeah, okay. What I found about what was so interesting about that video is they make that exact point in that video that, that yes, money does, if you don't have enough money to survive, Yes, getting money will make you happier, but having having money beyond that is not going to extend your happiness. There is a limit to how much um, happiness or contentment can come from having money, yeah. and all, ultimately, having too much money actually lends itself to discontentment mm-hmm. often because it becomes an obsession, yeah. right? There are people who have a lot of money that are able to be content and to, but and to and to be happy and not let it rule their lives but there there is a tendency that when we have more and more that we start to become obsessed with it so like you i think what you're saying is so important it's not money itself mm-hmm. that is the problem it is how we how we use money how we see money and ultimately how we love money mm-hmm. that that oh, is oh that's powerful um, yeah so i read uh because of the report uh, the happiness index report as you know is I mean, somebody's dissertation somewhere. <laughs> um, and they were looking at how much uh, income do you need to have to be considered happy? And it was like 120000 a year mm-hmm. uh, combined income. Mm-hmm. I, I might be wrong on the exact number, but it's around, it, I'm just giving you a ballpark figure. 
And when you think about it, that's not that much. I mean, it's, it's, still it's a lot comfortable, yeah. but it's not that when you think about a two-income uh, two family, it's not that much. And what they found was below that, you start having real, real difficulties. And what you're saying makes absolute sense. When, when there's food insecurity or housing insecurity or uh, the inability to provide for your children or education, et cetera, et cetera, that obviously contributes to a situation at home that is, that is more tense. What I found fascinating, though, as you're mentioning, is that below, beyond that threshold, your the your happiness index doesn't it it doesn't deviate that much now can you be a billionaire and be happy absolutely but you're not going to be happier than than somebody who's working a middle income job in a, in in the developed world and I, so i think that what you're saying is really really important um, it's yes, you do need to to have a job and to have work and to have some security and some stability, but beyond that, um, money is 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 perhaps one of the most overrated things we have. I love reading. Um, I just read a uh, a piece that I, I couldn't believe. So Warren Buffett, who's uh, Right now, his gross income is around $108 billion. <laughs> so that's just a little more than 120 k Warren Buffett lives in the same house, Joey, hmm. in Oklahoma that he did when, when uh, that's about a five-minute drive from Berkshire Hathaway. And it's, he bought it for, um, if you're thinking about the conversion now, uh, for about three hundred and thirty-five thousand, adjusting for inflation, which is, you know, in California, that's uh, that's not a lot of money to pay for a house. Right now, the house is valued at a uh, million dollars, mm -hmm. which sounds like a lot. But when you think about this man being uh, one of the top ten wealthiest persons on earth, you know, million dollar house, and they asked him, said Warren, why? Why don't you move? And his response, I think, was so profound. He said, well, this house has served me fine. He's lived there for 60 years. <laughs> and if I thought I'd be happier anywhere else, I'd, I'd move. But I don't feel I'm going to be happier everyone, anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I stay. Mm -hmm. um, just, just so profound because yeah. when we think about, we often think about mm -hmm. if I could only have more, um, I'd be happier and hear this person who has it all says, well, not really. <laughs> wow. wow. And that, that is a hard thing to do. I mean, I just, I don't know how it popped up, but I, every once in a while, these videos pop up in my YouTube and maybe it pops up because I actually watch mm -hmm. them. But there's this video of um, a $42 million home in Utah, Park City, Utah. Mm -hmm. Most expensive home, and they That's did. That's because you're gonna buy it. Yeah, yeah. He's been looking, <laughs> friends. Joey's been looking. I'm in the market, so if you know one. in Park City. So if uh, twenty-five million, those is, is his limit. That's my so. cap. <laughs> but I was, I was watching the video, and at first it was interesting. Like, what, what? causes it like that's the question first question that pops into my like what causes it to be 42 million and and then after watching a little bit i understood i mean it has like a bowling alley and an indoor like sports court and all these things right but then the other thing popped in my mind was anxiety like as i watched it it wasn't like 
oh my goodness, this would be so amazing. It's like, imagine having to clean that mm -hmm. home. And then, well, there's no way I could just clean it myself. That would be my full-time job. Then I would have to hire like a full-time staff just to care for the home. Like how much is that going to cost? And then it was just like, oh my goodness. And, and yes, like maybe if I had the money, I would do that. But then why would I need all that space? Why would I need, like, maybe if I were throwing galas every night, maybe, or, you know, so it was just kind of mind-blowing, this this home yeah. for me. And so I was thinking to myself, when you were talking about Warren Buffett, I was like, would I actually be happier living in that home than in living in mine? And honestly, I no, I mean, oh, no, <laughs> would it? <laughs> happier like it would actually be more stressful thinking about trying to upkeep this home um than, than than the home i have right now and so yeah and and, and if somebody out there live, lives in a 42 million we'd love home, to go visit you by the <laughs> we'd way we'd love to go we visit love you bowling and we'll play in your bowling alley we just we just won't buy it <laughs> but i, I it, it it does show that there are there are things that this world seems to set up as being the ultimate things. Like mm. when you don't think of life having a future beyond the 70, 80, 90, whatever years that we live here on earth, there is a tendency to look for meaning in things that are ultimately mm. meaningless, right? Yeah. And that's the point that's made in Ecclesi Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes over and over again. This man who continued to look for meaning in all of these things and ultimately his end was it's all meaningless. Yeah. There is no ultimate meaning in any of this. The only ultimate meaning is found in fearing God, mm -hmm. right? And 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 trusting in him and ultimately he leads you mm -hmm. to meaning. Yeah, think about think about that how how disheartening that realization must have been, mm -hmm. right? The lesson talks about that famous passage in Ecclesiastes where the wise man says, "I saw all the works that I had done with my hands. In essence, what he's saying is, I've taken inventory of my whole life, mm. and at the end, I find no joy in it. <laughs> that has got to be one of the most disheartening statements that one can make, wow. and yet people make it all the time. You were talking about this enormous home. I get anxiety in my 2,600 square foot home because <laughs> I don't feel I'm connected enough with what my kids are doing. My kids yeah. will be upstairs or in their room. And so I'm thinking, man, we're losing connections here, especially as, you know, my oldest is a preteen now and he wants his own space. And I want to be, I, I'd love, well, maybe not, maybe that's too much, but I was about to say, I'd love for us to cut the size of the house in half so that we all have to actually be in earshot of each other. Um, and I think both what, both what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying and, and what happens to this rich uh, fool is that we've tried, as you so artfully have said, to place meaning in things that are meaningless. And when you do that, you have... It, there is an internal mechanism, a compass that God has put inside us, mm. as C.S. Lewis so masterfully says, that tells you or that orients you to those things that are, in Tillich's words, of ultimate concern. Mm. And when you're not focused on those things, anxiety starts creeping in because your internal compass says, this, this thing that I'm invested in, this thing that I'm taking inventory on 
is not what God has made me for. And so there is, I think, this inherent anxiety. Think about the rich, old, the rich fool, Joey. Mm. He had an abundance for a harvest. That's a, that's a joyful occasion. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to, st- to store my crops. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll store my surplus gain, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat and drink, and be merry. Mm. We talk a lot about in this, in this culture about delayed gratification. Well, I think there are some real, real benefits to it. What this parable is trying to say is... Meaning, ultimate meaning is found in fearing God and in keeping those whom you love close today, Mm. now. And when you do that, all of this anxiety, if you have enough, and we've kind of talked about the importance of kind of having some sort of security. But when when you get there, the anxiety disappears because now your internal compass is connected to the will of God. Yeah. And that's what I, I found I loved about the quote that the Ellen White quote mm-hmm. that um, uh, the author led with. If you read that that uh, quote in context and testimonies, what she's talking about are people who are so worried about not having enough that they are like being stingy mm-hmm. with how they're spending on themselves, how they're spending on their children, how they're giving to the community. It's it's like you're living in in po- abject poverty because you're worried because you're about about the money, right? And she's saying if you're if you trust your children, trust your children to care for you, to use that money mm. to care for you well so that you can have a good life mm. here, right? Um and not live in abject poverty. That's something I, I, I didn't actually realize that Ellen White had talked about, that she had talked about the importance that as you, as you age, just to let, let, just to allow, to enjoy some of the fruits of your labors, that it's not a bad thing mm-hmm. to actually enjoy life a little bit and to not be so worried about the money that we have to be so stingy with ourselves and with others um, to be more free and generous with others and with ourselves. And that's why I think at, 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 as we conclude our conversation, we go back to the words of Jesus because I think Ellen White, and as she was saying it, I, I as I read that quote, I said, why didn't the lesson kind of continue with chapter 12? Mm-hmm. Because that's exactly, yeah. I was thinking, that's yeah, exactly yeah. the spirit of what Jesus says right after this yes. parable. He says, don't worry about your life. Mm-hmm. What you will eat or or about your body, about what you will wear. Life is more than food, body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. And we know this, right? They do Mm -hmm. not sow. They do not harvest. Look at the wildflowers in the field. But then he gives us this jewel that really encapsules what what, uh, Sister White was talking about in verse 32. Mm -hmm. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. But... Notice what he says right after. Provide purses for yourselves. So it doesn't say, like you were, like we were talking at the beginning, go into credit card debt to help the poor. <laughs> yeah. It says provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. Be intelligent. Be wise with how you're investing your own resources. And a treasure in heaven that will, ne- that will uh, never fail. Focus on that which is, be wise, focus on that which is of ultimate concern for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of this, 
this two-pronged tension where, where Jesus is telling his followers, be wise, be smart, be careful, don't worry, and focus on that which really matters. Yeah. Yeah, that, that tension is always going to be in, in place because I've seen some people who have you know, poured out everything to the point where they are left with nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, it then becomes a burden on them for themselves, for their family members, their loved ones, for the state, right? On the other hand, there are some people that are so miserly that that mm -hmm. they 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 do themselves and others a disservice with the with the resources that God is. So it is a tension, right? That we have to but what the principle that Jesus gives to guide that tension is this verse 31 and verse um, 34, uh, but seek his kingdom and these mm -hmm. things will be given to you as well, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that that what guides us is this future-minded approach that ultimately we want to make sure that we, we that that we have the, that we make wise use of the resources that God has given us to care for ourselves and to care for others, because ultimately what we're we're waiting for is the ultimate mm. deliverance, the ultimate healing, like you mm. said, when Jesus returns. Yeah. And so the tension then is resolved by providing purses for yourself that will not wear out, mm -hmm. but also by putting the kingdom of heaven in the first place. That is, I think a really astute way of looking not only at finances, but at relationships, at connections, at friendships, at our jobs, at, uh, at anything that we have. Pour into those relationships, but keep those things of ultimate concern always present. Joey, thank you for leading us. Uh, let's have a word of prayer as we, as we conclude today's conversation on planning for the future. Yes. Let's pray. Our good and gracious God, we want to thank you so much for being a God who steps into these difficult mm -hmm. spaces, these spaces that sometimes we're afraid to step into mm -hmm. because we're worried about where the conversations will lead. And yet you tell us that we do not have to be afraid mm -hmm. of what the future holds because you hold the future in, our, in your hands. And so with that confidence in your ability to care for us, we ask that you give us the courage to have conversations about the future with our family members, to, to have those difficult conversations about end-of-life decisions, about, about how we want the resources that we have to, to be used, how we want our end-of-life to be cared for, how we want our um, loved ones to respond and for, for us to be able to minister to them, and then also to live our lives with that future in mind, mm -hmm. um, intentionally not making more of money than it was intended to be, but not also making less of it either. Lord, guide us as we make those wise decisions today is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So our dear friends, this week, our prayer for you is simply that, as my colleague said, that you be wise and that wise action leads you to kindness and that kindness leads you to have just a glimpse, a brief glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven is. May you store your treasures there now and always. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.